Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As Sunday we'll be um, looking at the four places that deal with spiritual gifts here in 1 Corinthians 12, also in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4. And um, looking forward to getting into the third part of the Trinity. Um, let's go back to chapter 10. We took our context for Sunday out of 10, but it was really just as verse, verses 19 through 22. And we did not go through the chapter 10 verse by verse. Um, we did touch on the first six verses, but I want to go back and review those. So if you'll go back to chapter 10, verse 1, <clears throat> excuse me, it says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea, and they ate that same spiritual food. Now, we stopped at verse 3 on Sunday, and we pointed out the food that they ate was the manna that came from heaven, and um, they ate it for 40 years, and they didn't like it. They complained about it, and they remembered the delicacies that they had when they were in Egypt, the spices, the leeks, the onions, and um, yet what the Lord had chosen for them to get them from point A to point B was this manna. And it would arrive every morning, and they were to gather it daily. And then we went to John chapter 6, and Jesus said, don't think the manna from heaven was, that's not what it was referring to. That manna from heaven is actually me. I am the bread of life. And he said, I am the one that the father, the manna, sent down, and you're to eat of me. And one of the points that uh, we continually try to make is a connection between the old and the new, and you really don't have a deep understanding of the new unless you have a pretty good understanding of the old. So the point we made here was they complained because they wanted things a little bit spicier. And they didn't like manna every day. And they complained about it. And yet that's what God chose to get them to the promised land. And the point that I made as it relates to um, Jesus being the manna from heaven, he said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of me will never hunger again. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes from the word of God. And today, in the society that we live in, and the point that we made on Sunday, is uh, people are getting farther and farther away from doing what we're doing tonight. We're taking an hour off, and we're just studying the Bible. And to some churches, uh, they might say, well, what do you guys do over there at Calvary? Well, we, we study the Bible. Well, what else do you do? Well, that's about it. <laughs> Every week, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And um, that's what we're instructed to do. 
but the mentality of a whole, especially in a lot of the seeker-sensitive churches where they seek to appeal to the people and um, um, the people are having more of an influence on the church than the church is having an influence on the people. And that's not the way it should be. And the reason people don't like it is there's things in the Bible that you don't like to hear. And yet we need to hear them. Good place for an amen. So one of the main points we made on Sunday is that Jesus is the bread of life. He's seven times in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements. That's one of them. I'm the way, the truth, the life. I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the living water, and I'm the bread of life. And uh, seven is a number of completion. Then we went to verse four in way of review, and they drank of the same spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Well, 600,000 men left Egypt. That's not including the women and the children. So we're talking, they estimate at least 2 million people had to be watered and fed every day. And we read here in verse 4, and they drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So now we have a direct correlation um, where the Lord told Moses when they were murmuring and complaining again, he said, Moses, I want you to go over to that rock over there and I want you to strike it and it'll bring forth water. And he went over and hit the rock, brought forth water. People were satisfied. Well, they went to another place and um, uh, they hadn't had water for some time and they were complaining again. And um, so the Moses prays about it. He says, now Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go speak to the rock and it'll bring forth water. Well, Moses was sick and tired of the murmuring and the complaining and he had had it up to here with the children of Israel. And instead of speaking to the rock, he takes his rod and he strikes it twice. And by doing so, it wrecked a picture for every New Testament teaching, I like to say, there's an Old Testament um, picture. It, it wrecked the picture. And where we went to from there by, by uh, stri- um, striking the rock instead of speaking to the rock, the Lord said, Moses, come here. Because you've done this thing, you're not gonna go into the promised land. And we made the point that that sounds like pretty harsh punishment for just losing your temper and hitting a rock a couple times. I mean, he's been leading them for 40 years and now he can't go in. And, um, but the reason it's so important is we went to our text, which was about communion um, in chapter 10. We'll get to it in a little bit. Uh, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord, talking about the Lord's table, and a cup of demons. And, and so really it is, a, it is about, um, and that part of it, about communion. Well, the picture that was wrecked is that we went to Hebrews chapter 10. And over and over and over again, it talks about Jesus being offered one time. And being offered one time, 
It never has to be repeated again. So only one sacrifice. Jesus was struck the first time. That was necessary. But then, once he's struck, what we just did tonight before we started the Bible study is um, we prayed, Lord, we are told to come boldly before the throne of grace. Now we can do that because Jesus was smitten for you and he was smitten for me. And he only had to do that one time. So the, all of, if you're taking notes and you want to review or if you didn't get last Sunday's message, we made the, the point that um, it wrecks the picture by Moses not speaking to the rock because that's all we have to do now. As we come, there's one mediator between us and God, not a priest. And it's Jesus himself who's the high priest between us. So that's what Hebrews 10 is all about. But the point is, um, Moses blew it by (laughs) um, striking the rock, which spoils the picture because it gives the indication that Jesus needs to be um, crucified again and again and again. Now, the Hebrews were used to this because they had multiple um, sacrifices on a daily basis. And um, basically, he had to teach the Hebrews that isn't the way it is anymore. Now, we have a high priest who is our direct mediator, and he only has to be stricken one sacrifice. So he's teaching the Hebrews this. They're used to sacrifices all the time. And he's telling them, no, 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 that's not the way it is. Because Jesus said, it is finished. It's finished. The work is done. And now all you have to do is come directly, boldly into my presence. We got sidetracked there. And I got uh, into uh, Roman Catholicism. We talked about the Eucharist. And what happens every Sunday, and some people think, what's, what's the big deal? Well, the big deal is this. They actually have an altar there, and they actually have a priest, and only a priest. Nobody else can do this. You have, there's a hierarchy, that, and that's another thing the Lord doesn't like. You have the pope, you have the cardinals, you have the priests, and so you have this hierarchy, this order, but only the priest can take this wafer and literally sacrifice the Lord again. And then you take it for the sins that you committed that week, and then you drink of his blood. And um, that is more major than what you may think of because it gives the impression that Jesus has to be crucified again over and over. So I'm gonna leave it at that in way of review. That was verse four where we clearly see that these things, in verse six it said, became our examples that we should not lust after evil things as they lusted. Well, what did they lust for? Well, they wanted to go back to Egypt. They liked it there. It was spicier there. (laughs) Instead of eating this manna, so they murmured, 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 murmured. And the point that we make here is the satisfaction of the soul that can only come by feeding, and that's the correct word, feeding on the word of God. That's what satisfies the soul. 
The hype won't do it. Um, the spiciness of spicing things up won't do it. What brings satisfaction to the soul is, uh, as David would say, you satisfy my soul. It's your word, Lord, that I delight in. And it's sitting down and being still. Um, not in my notes, but sidetrack. I'm getting myself in trouble. Now I'm thinking, I don't know if we're going to get through the letters or not if I keep doing this. But uh, the thing, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were very unique individuals. Um, Martha was knowing for a hard worker. To her credit, she was a hard worker. And uh, Mary was, whatever you read about Mary, she's always known as sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. Well, one day Jesus was over at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house, and Martha was busy cleaning things up. And here's Mary doing nothing. She was just sitting down listening to Jesus. And it ticked off Martha. And she goes to the Lord and she said, Lord, I'm doing all the work all by myself. You tell my sister to get over here and help me. And the Lord said, no, because she has chosen that better part. And that better part, instead of service, was actually sitting down and communing with. Is everybody with me with that? It's important to have service, but it's more important to have communion with the Lord And so the Lord says, no, I'm not going to do that, Martha, because Mary has chosen that better part to sit still and hear my word. Now, what's interesting to me and the outcome of this is the disciples were always jockeying for position. They knew Jesus was the Messiah. They knew the kingdom had come. They're on their way to Jerusalem. So if Jesus is obviously going to set up the kingdom, then the guys start arguing who's going to be prime minister, who's going to be secretary of state, who's going to be in charge of this, who's going to be in charge of that. And they're arguing about their position. And the Lord goes back and he says, guys, you have not been listening. I said, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again the third day. Search the, search the Gospels. He says that at least twice. They heard what they wanted to hear. And what they wanted to hear is what position am I going to have once the Lord gets into his kingdom. Mary was different. This was not her attitude. Her attitude was um, one that was completely different because Judas rebuked Mary, because she took this costly ointment, a whole year's wages, and she anointed Jesus with it. And it really ticked off Judas. And Judas was upset because here's a year's wages that Mary just wasted on Jesus. And he said, Judas said, this money could have been used to feed the poor. Well, he didn't care about the poor. Uh, the Bible tells us he was a thief and he had his eyes, eyes on that money himself. He said, leave the woman alone because what she has done, she has done for my burial. Well, the disciples didn't get it. Um, they were arguing for position. They weren't listening. 
And here's my point. Because Mary was still, and she sat down and listened, and when Jesus said, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm gonna be betrayed. I'm gonna be crucified. And then I'm gonna rise again the third day. Guess who was listening? (laughs) Mary was listening. And that's why she went through uh, this whole thing, and she was doing this for the Lord's death. And so these are the, the, when it says these are given for our examples in verse six, that we should not lust after evil things, that means we should be content and not murmur for um, what they murmured for, which was spicing things up and, and making it maybe a little bit more exciting or whatever, rather than being content with God's word. And so here we're told that all those things that happened, the manna, the water, we're to learn not to murmur, but to be content with studying the Bible. Good place for an amen. So that's basically how the introduction of um, last Sunday was. Verse seven now, um, he says, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Well, this happened back in Exodus 32 where I'm gonna have you turn back to. Where did they eat and drink and party and rise up to play? Ezekiel, uh, Exodus, I'm th- sorry. Exodus 32, uh, picking it up in verse 23, and I'm gonna read verses 23 to 29. This is when Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai after receiving the Ten Commandments. For they said to me, make us gods that shall go before us. As for this man Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. He's been gone for 40 days. And where is he? And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let, it, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire. And this calf came out. This is one of the funniest scriptures in the Bible. This, this is Aaron's excuse. Well, we just took this gold and we threw it and we boiled it down and poof, out comes this golden calf. Nice try, Aaron. Now when Moses saw that the people had, were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them, uh, to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever's on the Lord's side, let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to them, and he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put on his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to throughout the camp and let every man kill his brother, every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of the Lord and about 3,000 men of people fell that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves to the Lord that he may bestow you and a blessing. Go back to verse six so you can see what's going on here. Um, while Aaron, while Moses is away, it says that um, 
In verse six, then they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings, bought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That's verse seven. Why were they uh, doing it? Um, uh, they were just partying hardy, and um, as a result of this, God's judgment, instead of trusting that Moses would come back, um, they threw all restraint aside, and um, uh, there was all sorts of, well, it speaks for itself. They rose up to eat and drink and rose up to play. Use your imagination. So as a result of this, when Moses shows up, he commands that those who are with the Lord, which would have been the Levites, you guys come on over here, and um, I want you to go and take out, about, it says about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, consecrate yourselves to the Lord that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man has opposed his brother, son and his brother. Well, one point was made perfectly clear that that was not gonna be tolerated. And as a result, and think this through with me, this was the day that the law was given. Moses went up and because uh, the first time he broke the tablets, he threw them. He actually had to go up a second time. And, um, but uh, here we have 3,000 people and what is Moses giving to them? He's giving them the law. Now, I don't believe in coincidence, especially in when it comes to numbers in the Bible. Now, turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter two. That was the day that the law was given, and we have 3,000 people that die. Now, when Pentecost comes, and this is what we'll be getting into this with the um, baptism in the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit and so on and so forth. But this is Pentecost. And this is the first time Peter gets up and preaches the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. And um, it says in verse 37, when they heard the gospel, it says uh, they were cut to the heart. That means they were convicted of their sins. And they said to Peter, well, what do we do? And He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his words were baptized and that day, what? about 3,000 people were added to them. What does the law bring? Death. Is it a coincidence that it was 3,000 when the law came? And is it a coincidence that 3,000 got saved when the first time the gospel was preached? I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think we're supposed to make a direct correlation that the law brings death and life um, comes by receiving the Lord and repentance. 
And the, the number 3,000, I think, is very significant. All right, let's go back to um, Acts, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, left off in 7, verse 8. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now we just, we're talking about a different incident from verse seven. This one in verse um, eight actually comes from the book of Numbers, verse 25, and I'm gonna have you turn back to the book of Numbers, verse 25, and we'll look at, um, I, I gotta give a little background to verse 25. First chapter, four chapters, I think, are given when Balak was the king of Moab. And the children of Israel are just getting ready to enter the promised land. And Moab is the last country that they have to go through. Now, the word had gotten out that everywhere the children of Israel go, they're victorious. They win every time. They win every war. So imagine you're the king of Moab, whose name is Balak, and you know that you're next in line. He hears about this guy named Balaam, who's a prophet. And he sends his men to Balaam, and he says, I tell you what, come and curse these people. Um, And Balaam, we read in Jude, that uh, Balaam's problem was he erred in his greed. In other words, another way of saying it, he was into it for, for the buck. And so when King Balak from Moab comes to Balaam, he says, I want you to come and curse these people. And he says, oh, I couldn't do that. I mean, even if he gave me a whole house full of gold and a whole house full of silver, I couldn't do it. And they cut on, and so they go from one mountain peak to another, and he says, okay, there they are, curse them. And when he opened his mouth, instead of cursing them, he would say something like, oh, how beautiful are the tents of Israel, and how awesome is the God of Israel. And here's Balak getting all ticked off. He said, I'd have you come up here to bless them. I asked you to curse them. He says, okay, let's go try another mountain. So they go, they repeat this routine three or four times. And finally, Balaam has to say to himself, I'm sure this is what he said, I want the money, but I can't do it because every time I try to do it, blessings come out instead of cursing. And he says, but I tell you what I can do. Even though I can't curse them, God will curse them. So I'm gonna give you guys some advice. And we read in the last verse of chapter 24, then Balaam arose and departed and returned to his place and Balak also went his way. But what he did is he informed them how God would curse his own people. And basically, As we talk about Corinthians, we know that it was full of idolatry. They had a thousand temple prostitutes. Um, Moab was no different. And so what he told 
uh, King Balak and says, tell you what, you want these people cursed? You get all your pretty gals, bring them down into the camp of Israel and show them how you worship your gods, which was sexual immorality. And I, all right, with that being said, now we can read verses one through nine of chapter 25. Then Israel remained in the Acacia Grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the woman of Moab. They invited the people to sacrifice to their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Then the Lord said to Moses, take all the leaders of the people and hang the offenders before the Lord out in the sun and the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, every one of you kill his men who were joined to Baal of Peor. And indeed, one of the children of Israel came and presented to his brethren in Midian the woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Now when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose among the congregation and took a a, a javelin in his hand and he went after the men of Israel into their tents and thrust both of them through the men of Israel and the woman through their body. So they're in tents, uh, in their, their tents, committing adultery. And so the plague was stopped among the children of Israel, and those who died in the plague were 24,000. Well, we read in the New Testament, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 10. It says... Nor let us, verse 8, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and one day 23,000 fell. And you um, ask, what was the difference? And my answer would be it says that um, when the law was given, it says, well, it was about 3,000. And when we read in Acts chapter 2, it says, well, it was about 3,000. So evidently, It wasn't the exact 24,000 or the 23,000, and that's the only explanation that I can give you for for that. I do do not believe that there's an error in the scriptures, Um, but in the way maybe in the translation of, well, let's just round it up or round it down. And uh, the other two places where it talks about 3,000, it clearly says about 3,000. Here it says a direct number, 23,000 fell, and back in numbers it said 24,000 fell. I wouldn't make a big deal out of it. Number nine um, says, we'll read nine through 13. Now, let us tempt Christ, nor let us nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and they were destroyed by serpents. Now this is a completely different incident. Nor murmur of some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. And again, I'll come back to this repeated a couple times because I want you to see 
how it's applicable for you and I. All these things happened as examples and were written for our admonition. And then, in other words, exhortation. Don't make the same mistakes they made. On whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. And let's look at this event. Number 21. Again, the people are murmuring. In 21, let's pick it up in verse um, 4 of Numbers. Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. So the Lord sent fiery servants serpents, in other words, poisonous snakes among the people and they bit the people and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore, the people came to Moses and they figured it out. We blew it. And um, um, as a result, God is judging us and people are starting to die. We have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Moses Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, I want you to make a fiery serpent. Without another translation, there is a bronze serpent, which is always, always represents um, judgment. And a serpent, of course, would be the snake representing sin. Set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who was bitten when he looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Well, it doesn't say they all looked at it. It just says those who did look at it. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Nicodemus would have known, of course, his story very, very well. He was a Pharisee, well taught. He was troubled by Jesus because nobody was doing what Jesus was doing at all. And he comes to Jesus by night and he said, look, we know you're from God because nobody can do what you're doing unless God is with them. And without exception, when you study the Gospel of John and the Lord is talking one-on-one, witnessing to somebody, he always tells that person something about themselves that no one else knows, without exception. And that's the case here. Nick here is beating around the bush. He said, we got it figured out that you've come from God. Nobody could do this. And what he's really wanting to know is, how do you do that? Because I'd sure like to have it too. And so the Lord cuts to the quick. He knows what's in his heart. 
And so he said to, to him directly, most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And you can't. You can't understand the real spiritual things of the Lord unless you're born of the spirit. The scripture says the natural man does not understand the things of the spirit, neither can he. Well, why can't he? Because the spirit of God isn't in him yet. Even Nicodemus, he knew the scriptures inside and out. But something's different about Jesus, and he wants it. He says, well, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And he's kicking this around, thinking about it. In verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? See, he's not getting it. And the Lord said, most assuredly I say unto you, unless one is born of water, and that means a physical birth, your water breaks and you're born, (laughs) and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Both have to happen. You have to be born of the flesh, but you also have to be born again of the spirit. (laughs) Excuse me. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say unto you, you must be born again. So when we hear people talking about being born again, some people blow it off as uh, Christianese or whatever, and they say, well, I believe in Jesus. Well, that's like Nicodemus saying, um, I'm a Pharisee, I understand the word of God, but he's still not born again. And he's not getting it at all. And he, he wants understanding. And so the Lord tells him, uh, Nicodemus, don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And for an analogy, he uses the wind blows where it wishes. You can hear the wind when it's blowing, uh, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. He's beginning to explain in natural terms the things that Nicodemus still can't understand, but he's making his way to bringing him. By the way, Nicodemus eventually got born again. He was a secret believer. He says, you know, Nick, it's sort of like the wind blowing through the trees. You can see the, the leaves blowing back and forth, but you can't, see the wi- you can't see the wind. But you can see the effect that it has on the tree. And so Nicodemus is saying, okay, how can these things be? And now the Lord sort of chides him. He says, I thought you were a teacher in Israel, and you don't know these things? There are many people in the pulpit Many denominations that stand up every week and they'll read a scripture and they will speak and I would say the same thing about many of them. Matter of fact, most of them. Are you not a teacher? Are you not a pastor? And you don't know the importance of being born again? Most assuredly, I say, we speak what we know. We have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that's himself, that is the son of man who is in heaven. Now, disperse. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. 
Now we have a direct connection against those that were bitten by the snake. Question at this point. There's not one person who's ever been born that has not been bitten by the snake. Good place for an amen. There's all have sinned. It doesn't say some have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And yet, what do a lot of people think today if you ask them if they're going to heaven? Oh, I don't think I'm that bad. You know, um, I'm not as bad as Mike down here, but I'm not as good as Dave is because I know Dave is better than Mike and Mike's better than Dave. I, got, I know that. But that's not how God judges because they're both sinners. All have sinned. And Nicodemus was a religious leader and they were so pious in their hypocrisy of being self-righteous that if they noticed a prostitute or a sinner coming down the street in their direction, they would take their robes and pull them in lest they would be touched by a sitter, as if it was contamination or something like that. And that's not the case at all. So he's bringing him along little by little, and he tells them this story about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And he's making this direct connection. Well, there's another element that I want to add to this. Um, and that was the earth was cursed when Adam and Eve sinned. And it brought forth thistles, right? No thistles before. And um, now, when they crucify Jesus, they put a crown of thorns on his head. And to me, it is a picture of the curse being placed directly on the Lord before he's crucified. What's he crucified on? A pole. And what is he being crucified for? Sin, a bronze serpent who enticed Eve. And so it's a picture, another Old Testament picture. Judgment is happening. God is judging the curse that came upon this world. And uh, Nicodemus is, I think the lights are starting to come on as we're going on here. And he realizes that there were those people who looked up that were bitten. Everybody's bitten, but not everybody looked at the, at the serpent. It says those who looked, they were healed. So what the Lord, he's wanting to get through to him, he goes on to say that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now he's making that connection from Nicodemus in the Old Testament to Nicodemus himself. And then we have probably the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, see not everybody, just those who choose to, free will, will not perish but will have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, 
but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is a condemnation, that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. It's not that people don't believe in God. Well, they know that there's a God just because of creation. And yet, they know that it's, the gospel is probably the truth. And as Nicodemus is listening to all this, he's getting closer and closer, but now it's come to decision time. And we're told here that some come to the light and some do not come to the light. Well, if you know the truth and you don't come to the light, how come you don't come to the light? Answer, you don't want to quit your sinful lifestyle. You don't want to line up with what um, the light exposes. And you're exposed when um, you're in sin. Verse 20 will be the last one here. For everyone who practices evil hates the light. Don't tell me about that Jesus stuff. I just don't want to hear it. And does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. If I become a Christian, I'm not going to be able to do this anymore, do that anymore, do this anymore, do that anymore. Problems with... um, in the marriage, one is saved, one isn't, and, and um, there's not that oneness that God desires that they would be of one heart and one mind. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we've, I've just given you three very different examples of Old Testament pictures. And we just read in verse 9, that they were destroyed by the serpents. Well, why were they destroyed? Well, now you know the whole story. Why they, and why did it happen? Well, verse 11, all these three examples that we just gave in verse 11 says this happened to them as an example. And they were written for our exhortation or admonishment on whom the ends of the age have come. You've been bitten by sin. You've got a choice. You can look to Christ and be saved, for God loves you. God loves the world so much. He gave his son. What's going off in Nicodemus' mind right now? Well, we know that you're come, you come from God, but now you're actually implying that you are God, and I need to draw my attention to you instead of God who is part of the Trinity. And now it's starting to come together with him. No wonder Jesus is so special. He's God himself. He's the one who came down from heaven and he's the one that's going back to heaven. And only God can do that. And long story short, with Nick, we don't know where along the way. I always like to say um, where it says here, he didn't want anybody to see him so Nicodemus came to him at night This is the first Nick at night that ever was, way back, 2,000 years ago. That was a joke, by the way. All right, that brings us to uh, 14 through 33. And it's sort of switching gears about our sensitivity towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. And the scripture tells us that um, 
you are to esteem the person you're sitting next to higher than yourself. And that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That's not natural because by nature we love ourselves. Good place for an amen. I can't do that without somebody greater than me that has to live in me that has that capacity to do so because by nature we're self-centered. Do you know that you wake up every morning in the flesh? (laughs) Every single day? That's why Paul said I die daily. I have to. And you have a free will. Well, I can die in my flesh today or not or go and do my own thing. It's your choice. So we read here, therefore, my beloved, verse 14, flee from idolatry. Oh, I could get sidetracked here. I'm so upset right now. Things that I'm hearing on the news and other programs about what they're doing um, to our young kids um, in the public school system. And um, if you're a parent and you have kids in the public school, you better be showing up at these uh, parent-teachers conferences and ask straight out, are you teaching gender transition in your classes? And if you are, I want to know so. And if you are, my, my son or my daughter is not coming to school anymore. And um, that's what it means, flee from idolatry, much, much less put it into the minds of the uh, susceptible and easily influenced children that are in fifth and sixth grade. But I speak to you as wise men, judge for yourself what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, being many, are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. So if you are born again, are there born again Catholics? Let me go right to the one I pick on I picked out on Sunday. The answer is yes, there are. And um there was a movement in the early 70s, like a Catholic charismatic movement. It was a real deal. I know a lot of people that got saved. I bet my best friend Pat got baptized in the Holy Spirit at one of their retreats. And it lasted for about oh, three, four, five years. And then it psh, fizzled. Now, why do you think it would fizzle? A true work of the Lord and a real work of people truly being born again, but then it just sort of fizzled out. And the answer to that question is why there is no more Catholic charismatic movements is they were truly born again, but they kept all of the heresy and the sacraments that went along with Roman Catholicism. They didn't have verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study they'd have a big problem with reading this chapter that I'm reading right now because their baptism or their communion is totally different. And that's what's being, the point that I was, main point I was trying to make on Sunday is that every true born again Christian, are they born again Lutherans? Yes. Um, most of them, no. Religion, yes. 
Um, just pick a denomination and you will find born again people in it, but they're just not equipped biblically and have the discernment to know that there's more to it than that. That was the case in my family with, with, with my dad. I'm a, we'd argue. Um, every time I'd try to bring it up, Doville and argument in the Doville family. It was about there's more to it than going to church. The only arguments that we had before that is I had long hair and he was a barber. <laughs> and that's what we would argue about. And, um, and dad got saved. He met, he met Jesus in a real way. Completely changed his life. My dad was a very wealthy man at one time. He died in debt. He died owing money. Because he sold his businesses and moved to Arizona. Was there for 20 years with John Higgins. Um, not really interested. Drove school bus. I mean, from owning, I don't know how many businesses at Oshkosh and franchise for Wick Homes and, and into real estate. Um, he was so upset that I was going into ministry. He pulled me aside one day. This isn't in my notes anyway, and I decided I'm not going to do chapter 11. <laughs> so I could tell stories. He said, he pulled me aside. He said, son, come here, I want to talk to you. I tell you what. I'll give you $50,000 right now, and I'll turn the family and businesses over to you if you don't throw your life away. That's the way he looked at it. I'll give you $50,000 right now, and I'll give you all the family businesses when I retire. They're all yours. Just don't throw your life away. I'm at church every Sunday. <laughs> Put 20 bucks in the communion plate. And as far as he was concerned, for me to tell him he wasn't a Christian and born again, you know, again, unless you're born again, you just don't understand it. But when you're born again, and the way I knew my dad was born again, he said, at the age of 50, son, I feel like I've wasted my whole life. I've wasted my whole life. It's all for nothing. He understood for the first time. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Jesus will last. All this stuff that I've accumulated. I'm going to die someday. Then what? Now we're talking Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. I have all these things, but it means nothing. I'm going to die, and who knows who's going to get it? I can't take it with me. And so we left off. Here is where we'd have to, to, the idea is if you're born again, you're born again into, verse 17, we have one bread and one body. And so when, usually it's Paul Cameron who's up here during, uh, the scriptures that we're going to read next week or maybe on Sunday on communion. <clears throat> Paul says something like this. We practice here what we call open communion. And um, sometimes people will come up and say, well, how do I become a member of Calvary Chapel? I said, you can't. Well, what do you mean? I can't. You can't be join as a member you have to be born into it. In other words, if you're born again, you are a member. And 
So Paul will say, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, you are allowed to participate with us and have communion. For we, and for we being many, uh, one bread, verse 17, are, are, are one, one body. Well, that's true with a born-again Christian, but if it's just religion, that's something different. And it's certainly different with what hocus-pocus goes on with the Eucharist in the the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the same. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are those who eat of the sacrifice partakers of the altar? Question. What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Now, who is he talking to? Well, he's talking to people in Corinth. All they've known is paganism. All they've known is idolatry. All they've known is sleeping around. That's all they've known. And now he's telling them, no, if you know the Lord, now we become one body. And... He's saying to the older ones who understand this, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or is offered to idols is anything? In other words, a more mature Christian knows there's one God and they may have idols of stone or whatever that they bow down and worship to. But if you're mature in the Lord, you go, there's only one God. That's just a piece of stone. Can't hear me can't talk back to me, and they understand that. But there are younger ones that are just getting saved in Corinth, and all they've known is paganism and idolatry. That's what he's addressing right here now, a stronger brother and a weaker brother. But I say the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, but I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. They're two different things. This is instruction, ABCs for a new believer. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but all things do not edify Let no one seek his own, this is important, but each one the other's well-being. In other words, understand who you're talking to. Paul said he became all things to all people so he could win them to Christ. If they were a highly educated Jew that has been born again, he could deal with them on that level. And if it was um, a pagan who just got saved in, in Corinth, well, then he'd come down to that level and he'd work with that person on that level. That's called being wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove. Know who you're talking to. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market and ask no questions for conscience sake. So you go with your young friend who's a young believer and He's invited over for supper tonight. He said, well, let's go grocery shopping. Okay, we'll get, go down there. I'll, I'll buy the meat tonight. Don't ask the guy behind the counter, was this stuff offered to an idol? Don't even go there. Don't even bring it up. 
Verse 25, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth of the, of, is the Lord's and it is in its fullness. If any of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to an idol, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you for, the, for conscience sake. In other words, don't stumble the guy. Uh, he hasn't gotten past this thing that an idol is nothing. Can't do anything. He still believes there's something behind it. So don't stumble him. And then it goes on to say the, uh, the earth is the, the Lord's and all of its fullness. Verse 29, conscience, I say, not your own, but that of the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? In other words, you pray for it, bless it, and uh, your conscience is clear. Therefore, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I also have pleased all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many. So what's the bottom line for all this? Why go through all this? so that they might be saved. And don't bring up an issue that's gonna cause somebody to push them away, but rather draw them in. And I guess if if we would sum up verses 14 to 33, that's exactly what Paul is saying. Use a little tact when you're talking to people. Figure out where they're at. How mature are they in the Lord? Do they know the Lord at all? Um, don't do something if they believe that meat's been offered to an idol. Um, um, Don't make an issue of it. Be sensitive to that individual. Why? So he'll continue to open up. Well, I thought we were going to make it through chapter 11, no problem. And um, it's a problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but we'll, we'll save that for Sunday. Let's stand and we'll close with a word of prayer. Lord, as we make our way through um, 1 Corinthians 10, we thank you for the Old Testament examples and that they were really written for our admonition and our exhortation, not to murmur, not to complain, just to be content to sit at your feet, hear your word, and allow our faith in you to increase. Lord, give us discernment with people that we come in contact with. Help us by your spirit, Lord, evaluate um, just if they're saved or not saved and how to approach it. Give us words of wisdom and, and how to address that, as Paul would say, becoming all things to all men so that we can win them. Thank you for your word tonight, in Jesus' name. Amen.